The Men's Room, a talk sport podcast in partnership with Toolstation. From masculinity to mental health, friendship to fatherhood, join Tom Skinner and Neil Razor Ruddock for the podcast that gets to the nuts and bolts of what it really means to be a man. Listen and follow now via your preferred podcast portal. The Men's Room, in partnership with Toolstation. Save 5% on everything you need for a whole month with the new Toolstation Club. Join today online, in-store or via the app. Yeah, hold that please, level 5, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi, nice to meet you. Hi, now the most important thing to know is to Ertz and the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what, sorry? The single most important thing is to Ertz and the Channelized Bimbingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. Welcome to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe. Over the course of the next hour... I'll be joined by two greats of the modern game. They've both played over 100 test matches for their country, have 80 captaincy caps between them, and are both right up there with the leading analysts and most popular commentators in the game. My guests today are Michael Atherton and Sean Pollock. Now, I want to know, before we get into the nitty-gritty, and there's a lot of it, um, what skill have you learned during your uh, time under lockdown, Michael? Or, or, or what have you become better at? <laughs> Passing time. Um, my, my watch literally stopped. The battery ran out seven days ago at half past 11. So I've been kind of passing the last seven days without a watch to go by. So I've just been, you know, passing time as best I can. In terms of new skills, I can't say that I've acquired any new skills, but I'm a better cook than I was. I have read more books than I had done before, and my bits in the wine cellar are very much less than they were before. So um, <laughs> not, very, not very much on the self-improvement front, I'm afraid. Unlike Sean Pollock, who became a um, YouTube sensation with his, with his chipping skills. Oh no, man! Is that that was taken out of proportion. I just decided to try it, and <laughs> people ran with it. Anyway, it was uh, it was from a bit of boredom, to be totally honest. Um, I, the only skill I've sort of developed, and and you know how difficult it can be for me at times, is patience. I have to sit around and and sit waste a lot of time. But um, I think we are fortunate still in this country that we can get outdoors and and feel the sun on our backs and and be outdoors more than indoors. So. We've made do. It's getting a little bit frustrating, and we, we can't deny that. England, I'm very jealous of. They've opened up their golf courses, so I'm still hoping that uh, Mr. Ramaphosa will um, say to us uh, that it's, it's all right and we can social distance on a golf course. So I'm looking <laughs> forward to that. But, but it has been challenging, but you do also spend a lot of time thinking, don't you, about possibilities. It's, it's been a bit of a reset period in many ways. You, you tend to analyze where you're at, what you're doing, what the dreams and everything going forward is, um, but maybe that's a bit too philosophical. Oh no, don't worry about that. It's exactly uh, your thinking time that we want to that we want to delve into. Um, I don't want to take any make any assumptions, although 
it would seem to me fairly obvious that you you would both be fo in favour of of cricket resuming in in whatever form. So, um, just uh, as a as a general rule, um, I better I better confirm that you're not either of you anti cricket <laughs> restarting, Michael. No, I, I think uh, I mean obviously it's hit England harder than everywhere else because this virus came just as the English season was about to get underway. So it's terrifically damaging for all levels of the game here at the elite level, obviously the internationals that England would be hoping to play, but also at a recreational level. It, you know, we've had a couple of months of the summer here where I have to tell you the weather has been absolutely magnificent, unusually so, ironically, and we've had no cricket. So it doesn't seem like an English summer without cricket. So I'm very much in favour of getting cricket back on when we can, as long as, two provisos really, as long as it's not going against any government instruction or stricture, and as long as it's not getting in the way of, you know, whatever is needed on the health front line. So I think everybody would be pretty uncomfortable with sportsmen, you know, getting a level of testing before NHS staff, for example, or if physios in sport happen to get hold of PPE stuff if there was a dramatic shortage on the front line. So once you're not interfering with those two things, I'm very much in favour of trying to work out a scenario, as indeed the ECB are doing, which is to get cricket on, elite cricket, for broadcast purposes, in biosecure venues, and so at least there will be some cricket played it's going to be tougher for domestic cricket and recreational cricket because of the challenges that are there. But they do seem quite optimistic that they can get some televised biosecure cricket on from about July the 8th. Sean, um, it's not a pressing matter of pressing urgency for South Africa, is it, uh, with winter uh, about to approach? But uh, I suppose it's given you a little bit more time to, to contemplate things like biosecure venues and um and shining the ball with an artificial substance i bet that's been uh, been, been been something that you've been thinking about <laughs> yeah i mean I, I agree with Ethan and all the reasoning behind it um you know and but i am a fan of trying to get it back on i think just from a mental health perspective for people who are sitting at home if there is some way that we can get some live sport back on to the televisions, um, I think that will benefit a lot of people sitting in the environment. So, as as you mentioned, South Africa is in the winter break. Um, there's not much um, cricket that's planned. Yes, we had a few international tours planned overseas, but as far as domestically goes, um, you know the guys were having a break anyway. So that's worked out okay. Um, I do think when we start again, I think it would be though. I think it's going to be difficult with international travel. I mean, maybe you can charter planes or, or things along those lines. But from a South African perspective, I wouldn't be surprised if the first bit of cricket we do see is domestically, um, where everyone, every team gets just bussed up to Johannesburg. You use four venues there for maybe an early version of the Amzanzi League, um, especially with the T20 World Cup, hopefully going to take place at the end of the year. You know, there's been a lot of talk about shining the ball and would you have slips in place and all those kind of things. I think the environment that will end up being created is going to be like almost like a bit of a bubble where people will get tested. Um, they'll go into a two-week camp where they just sort of sit and, and monitor how the conditions of their bodies change. And if there's no symptoms, 
you know, it doesn't really matter about shining the ball then because you're in the bubble. No one who's you come into contact to will have the coronavirus. Um, so you can just get on with normal proceedings. I mean, I, I would presume that there'd be no crowds in, in place, uh, that every single environment that they go into would be cleaned down and, and sprayed and, and everything along those lines. So I think in that bubble, even in the T20 World Cup, I mean, I, I think it, it could maybe take place that. You know, Australia are down to 600 cases. If if they eliminate all their cases and for two or three months there's nothing that transpires, there's no second spark, um, could teams be chartered in there and on planes go into a, a camp, uh, that the, like an isolation camp where they've got food and accommodation and some net facilities. They practice for two weeks and then once everyone's given the all clear, then maybe they can go into the Australian bubble um, if that is formed. So... Yeah, you, you've been sitting there thinking, well, what could or can't happen? I think the biggest challenge is, is the international matches where a team who flies in, if one person's got the virus, then all of a sudden the whole tour comes to a grinding stop. So I think Australia is probably in the best scenario to, to create a little bit of a vacuum or bubble where maybe things can't happen. In a funny way, in England, they think international cricket is going to be easier to put on than domestic cricket for a couple of reasons really, but international cricket only requires two teams, so West Indies are due to come here. They'll have to come and have a two-week quarantine period, so they'll have to be in England for four weeks ahead of the potential test match. Uh, a couple of weeks of quarantine, a couple of weeks of practice. Um, but then it's only two teams and two venues required. So in England, for example, the Aegeus Bowl at Hampshire and Emirates Old Trafford have hotels on site, so that's the kind of creating the, the bubble that Sean is talking about. For domestic professional cricket, all the counties, it's much more difficult because you've got 18 teams and it's not going to be easy to create the biosecure venues over that uh, number of, of grounds. And if no crowds are allowed in um, and it's not on television, then it's not really the rationale for putting it on. Obviously, international cricket they want to put on because of the broadcast revenues, which are worth you know a couple of hundred million quid to the ECB um, every year. And then when cricket does happen, you know, it was Joe Root who said that he wouldn't be in favour of cricket if it was too compromised. By that, I think he meant, you know, if the wicketkeeper, for example, couldn't stand up to the stumps, if you couldn't have a silly point in place because it's too close to the batsman, if the slips had to be socially distanced, you know, the game gets compromised to such a degree that it becomes uh, almost not worthwhile. But clearly, as Polly rightly says, in a biosecure environment, that's not going to be a problem. Once everybody's tested and everybody's clear, then it's going to be okay. But there will be one or two issues if you think about it. What, for example, happens if a batsman breaks a finger and he's got to go to hospital for an x-ray and he's got to leave the bubble and then come back? And if there's a delay on testing or the testing results have a delay. So I think you'll see one or two compromises. In that instance, I think what you'll see is that there'll be an extension to the concussion rule. If you, if you remember, Marcus Labashain became the first concussion substitute for Steve Smith last year. And I think what will probably happen this summer, and just you know, a short-term measure, is that an injury that requires somebody to go to hospital, they'll probably allow a substitute for that, whether it's a broken finger or a torn hamstring or whatever. And that will be one of the changes that you'll probably see as a short-term you know, measure just to get cricket on. I heard that the ICC had actually put in place the wheels of 
or put the wheels of motion uh, into action to, to have COVID-19 substitutes. Um, it means that England and, and for that matter, the West Indies. The West Indies are going to be traveling. I understand that the ECB may have to spend 400,000 pounds on a, on a charter plane um, in order to get them over. Gee, I hope it's all business class at that price. Um, but, <laughs> well, well, I mean, the West Indies have got serious logistical issues of their own because all their con the nine countries, of course, so they've got to get, you know, government say so from nine different governments. Then they've got to get all their players together in one venue so they can charter a plane to come to England. Now, that's extra cost for West Indies, as you rightly say. They reckon about 400,000 quid. So that's something that the ECB will have to stump up for. You wouldn't expect West Indies to pay extra for that. And the costs quickly mount up. When you think of the cost of testing, each individual test is going to cost about 80 to 100 quid. Hand sanitizers, I understand, is into six figures alone for the two biosecure venues. So it's adding up to millions of pounds, but set against broadcast revenue of, you know, a couple of hundred million, it's small beer. Sean, do you um, think that it's, are you of the opinion that it just has to be possible? Every time you hear somebody say, oh, it won't be the same if you can't shine the ball and how are you going to stop players high-fiving and how are you going to stop this? And how, you know, do you just, are you of the, of the opinion that, yes, there are a thousand problems, many of which we probably even haven't even thought of, but we just need to concentrate on finding solutions. Yeah. Um, you know, you've, in your team, you often got individuals, certain ones, uh, and, and you define two of them as energy creators or energy sappers. <laughs> and when you're having these, when you're having these discussions, there's always the energy sappers who, who aren't that keen on, on anything transpiring. Um, what were you, Polly? I, I was an energy creator, energy creator. <laughs> I, I wasn't a maverick, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think you've got to look at all the possibilities and that's what the administrators will do. I mean, I'm sure they'll have sleepless nights waking up at two in the morning and say, oh, we need to make sure that this gets checked or that gets checked as well. But I think it's, it doesn't look like this pandemic is going to go away in the next 12 months. And, and even if they do find a vaccine, you know, to get it produced and get it everywhere, it might take a little bit longer. So in many ways, you have to try and make do with the situation you have to try and make the best of it um you know as i mentioned our domestic league it's only got six teams so you know you, you can make that kind of work and as Ath says the international cricket is, is going to be the easier one to control because of of the fact that you can get thing people together but i think people do understand i think everyone you know, from all aspects of cricket are thinking after two months or even three months of, of no activity. Uh, we need to try and make a way for this to work. I mean, everyone, even the international cricketers, they'll all be chomping to try and get out there. And um, I think, yes, there are going to be problems. But if you're going with the attitude of we're going to find a solution for every little dilemma we face and try and create the energy that way, I, I think we've got a chance. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't work out, so be it. Then we go into cricket lockdown for a little bit longer. But um, I think you've got to be trying and, and seeing if you can make it transpire. Michael, what do you say to people, and there are obviously lots, um, who say, why are you even talking about restarting sport at a time like this? There are millions of lives at risk and uh, it's inappropriate and, and insensitive. 
I don't think it is inappropriate or insensitive. I think everybody who works in sport recognises that it's not the most important thing in the world, that there are many more important things than sport. And as as I said at the start, I'm in favour of it restarting with the proviso that it's not, you know, against government strictures or getting in the way of of the health uh, frontline requirements. Um, but that's not to say that sport is completely unimportant either. It's it's a big thing in people's lives. It's a big part of the leisure economy in this country. For most people, cricket in the summer is a thread that has run through the whole of their lives. They often set their calendar by, you know, cricket in the summer. Um, and therefore, it will, would be a, a morale-boosting thing, I think, if sport can come on, providing the risks are acceptable. And of course, that is a very different, difficult balance and to know how to strike. There is risk in everything you do in life. Uh, There is risk every time you take to the field in cricket. You know, if you weren't prepared to accept any level of risk, you wouldn't play cricket for all the tragic, you know, events that we've seen over the years, the the Philip Hughes circumstance, for example. So there's always an element of risk there. You just need to make sure that that risk is acceptable and eliminated as far as possible. And to be fair to the ECB here in England, that is what they have been trying to do. They have followed government guidelines to the letter. Uh, The England players, about 30 of them, are returning to practice. But they're returning to practice following the government guidelines to the letter. So they'll have to turn turn up at the ground already changed. They'll only be allowed one to one practice. They'll have to stay socially distanced. The bowlers who are using a box of balls will only use their own batch of balls and it won't be, they won't be able to be shared around. And this is very much phase one of the return to elite play. And when the government allow phase two, which will be small groups getting together, uh, you know, to allow slip catching practice or whatever, then the ECB will follow that guideline. So all along, their first priority has been health. And, you know, having regard for the health and well-being of their players and their staff. And I think that's entirely sensible. And once you're following that, you know, you hope eventually to get to phase three of this, which will be then getting 25 players together in a biosecure environment so they can have match practice ahead of a return to competitive cricket on July the 8th. So there's no sense that the ECB or cricket authorities are being unduly risky or gung-ho here they are trying to do the right thing it's a very very difficult situation i've got tremendous sympathy for everybody making decisions in this environment but so far i think the ecb have, have done pretty well man it's just a little point on that i mean everyone's every part of the economy needs to get back to normal at some stage so you know if you can fast track certain parts of the economy without affecting anything um you know, I mean, even we talk about South Africa, and we were a massive country, and, and there's parts of the, the, the northwestern, I mean, north, northern Cape that don't even have any cases. Um, you know, there's towns, there's little suburbs there that have got nothing. Um, and if you can get them back to normal, why not? You know, why, why not that be the case? If there's absolutely no risk of them picking up the virus and they can go to do their shopping or whatever it is, rather than a full lockdown, and I think it's the same on the cricket front. It's, it's, it's got to get back to normal at some stage. So if it can be fast-tracked, and I think, as Ath said, it's, it's adding entertainment. Um, and it's, you know, mental diseases have been talked about a lot about people who've 
had to sit in, in confinement for two or three months. You know, if they get to turn on the TV and there's live sport and, and that really helps them deal with the situation they're facing, well, then there's also there's a positive to it as well. The England players, Michael, were told, um, I think, yesterday or a couple of days ago that, that, that going to Nets will be safer than going to the supermarket in terms of the pandemic. <laughs> um, the, the quality and standard of leadership is, is going to have to be very, very um, strong, isn't it? Uh, playing in a biosecure environment. And, you know, nine weeks, England will be, would be effectively be in a bubble uh, which if they left, they wouldn't be able to return to for, for nine weeks. And it's, I mean, th it'll be scary, uh, you know, and also cricket is notoriously um, good at creating fractious players, <laughs> particularly test cricket. <laughs> it's important to be able to get out of the hotel, isn't it, and escape and just, you know, get out for a while. Um, and it's not just going to be 13 or 14 players. It could be as many as 30, plus all the support staff, um, and nine weeks could feel like a damn long time. <laughs> You're right. There are two aspects to the leadership. One is the administrative leadership, the ECB, Tom Harrison is the chief executive. And as I mentioned a moment ago, I think they've done pretty well so far. They stepped up quickly with a 60 odd million pound support package. Uh, you know, they've tried to be guiding the, the game through this crisis and they've done pretty well. And then, as you rightly say, you've got almost the on-field leadership, which in England will come down to Joe Root and Chris Silverwood. There's an added complication with Joe Root because his wife is due to give birth to their second child the very first day of this, of this West Indies series, which is July the 8th. So you may well see Ben Stokes taking over the captaincy of the England team for that test match. What Ashley Giles said the other day, actually, was that he was not in favour of having a situation where the players would have to be in the hotel for nine, ten weeks. He thinks it's very important, if it's possible, for players to go home, see families, see children, see elder parents, grandparents, whatever it is. And obviously, that's only if, if it can be done, if, if you can get tested on the way out, tested on the way back in, um, that kind of thing. But that's one of the reasons why... England require a big squad, uh, 25, 30 people, because it's unlikely for three back-to-back -back tests that they are going to pick the same 11 each time. And then you've got one-day cricket following, so they're likely to have almost two separate squads. So there's a, a lot of players going to be needed. There'll be some opportunities for some younger and less well-known players amongst that. I enjoyed the Jofra Archer's suggestion. Uh, again, a few days ago, when he said that he would like crowd noises and and cheers to be played into the <laughs> into the stadium, um, and uh, do, do you know, I I I did I really enjoyed that because uh, it, it it um, I mean it's quite creepy, isn't it? Australia and New Zealand played a one day international just before the global lockdown in an empty stadium and, uh, and, and Ross Taylor said it felt like a practice match. And, uh, you know, there was obviously a lack of atmosphere, but it's, I mean, I, I think we need to, we do need to be creative and think out of the box. I know that there have been several administrators and television producers as well. who have been talking about for the, for the, for the enhanced viewing of the, the television production of, of having, graphic uh, uh, you know graphically generated crowds so you didn't just see swathes <laughs> of of empty seats so it all sounds slightly ridiculous but i i quite like the idea where, where are commentators going to be by the way 
Uh, well, good question. It does present some challenges, doesn't it, from a broadcast point of view and indeed a written media point of view. Just commentary, thinking of commentary, you know, usually we sit down and just pick up the microphone that the previous commentator has used. So all those kind of things are going to have to be thought about. You probably have to have your own personalized microphone or something. I mean, commentating without a crowd is a desperate experience, as, as Sean, I'm sure, would agree. I've done the odd test match in the UAE, England against Pakistan, where there's been nobody in the ground. And it is like commentating into a graveyard, really. And that's a desperate experience. When I compare that to Headingley last year, for example, when Ben Stokes scored that magnificent 100 to, to win the test match against Australia, and you you just carried along, really, by the crowd. And you can really play off that as a commentator, as, as you'd know manners. And it's harder, much harder, when there's no crowd there. But I think, in the grand scheme of things, that's probably the least of anybody's worries. Yeah, I think it is a challenge. I mean, maybe all the stadiums will have to be uh, rearranged and the seating done like Brisbane, um, where it's all the different colours. So it looks like this. It looks like this crowd you know, they've come to watch. But uh, yeah, I think the biggest challenge in many ways will be for teams like England. Um, you know, whenever they play at home, it's basically full crowds, you know, whether it's Lords or the Oval or Headingley. And when they go away, they've always got the support of the Barmy Army. Um, as I've said, there's other teams like Pakistan who've been playing in the UAE who get no crowds for the, the test matches. So, I mean, they'll be in a, in a better situation if they're to who may be playing against England this time because that's something they're used to. Um, it will be a challenge. I, I think from a player's perspective, yeah, maybe you could record um, a massive reaction uh, and every time there's like an edge to slip that gets played in just to make it sound a little bit more exciting. Um, but I, I think at the end of it, we sort of will end up nitpicking at what we can or can't do. But at the end of the day, I, I think if you said to the players, listen, we're at least going to get out there. We're going to be playing test cricket. Uh, it might not have the same atmosphere. Uh, you might have to get used to a few different changes. But would you prefer to be out there playing? I think at this stage, after all these months off and them chomping, um, I think they'd accept it and, and they'd have to just learn to get on with it. We have uh, one other quite um, difficult uh, problem to overcome as well when we, when we talk about broadcasting in an empty ground in England. We have quite strict Ofcom requirements here, which means that every time you hear a swear word over the stump microphone or a swear word broadcast, we have to apologise. Now, often those, you know, cricketers' sounds or verbals are drowned out by the noise, but can you imagine every little bit of noise is going to be picked up in an empty <laughs> ground so it's going to be a permanent kind of apology for bad language going out on the airways they'll be on their best behavior <laughs> <laughs> the men's room a talk sport podcast in partnership with tool station from masculinity to mental health, friendship to fatherhood, join Tom Skinner and Neil Razor Ruddock for the podcast that gets to the nuts and bolts of what it really means to be a man. Listen and follow now via your preferred podcast portal. The Men's Room, in partnership with Toolstation. Save 5% on everything you need for a whole month with the new Toolstation Club. Join today online, in-store or via the app. Now hold that please, level 5, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi, nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to Ertz and the Bypassal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. 
The single most important thing is to work in the channelised bin bingo so the bypass will rise plug sale and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. You both had crises during your captaincy. I mean, we look back now at the dirt in the pocket thing in 1994. And, uh, you know, as far as Ray Ellingworth was concerned, my God, it was more important than, co- than COVID 19. Uh, he made a massive. <laughs> massive thing about that but it was but it was it was a you know a crisis um for the time and then six years later sean took over the captaincy of south africa after hansi cronier and the the match fixing scandal so so they were both um crises in a in a sense weren't they and this is (laughs) this is rather different neither of those was a pandemic but 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 my point is that you you were both thrust very, very firmly into the spotlight um, and then weathered the storm and, and came through. Is that the kind of message that we should be thinking about now that, you know, we'll get over this, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, we'll look back at this in a couple of years' time and, um, and, and life will go on as normal or is, or is that not going to happen? I think it depends a little bit on, on your outlook on life, doesn't it? I mean, whether you're a glass half full or glass half empty type person. I, I mean, I, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm the most optimistic man alive, but I, I generally, <laughs> you know, feel that uh, the, the human race is, is remarkable in its productivity and its flexibility and the way that it, it, it manages to come through various crises. So I do think we will get back to some kind of normality eventually. And I, I have to say, I've been, I, I've looked at the way that uh, the ECB have dealt with it here in some admiration. It's a very tricky circumstance. And organizations like that tend to be slow moving. You know, any organization that is almost committee led and, you know, board of directors and they've got to meet and make decisions, they tend, the wheels of administration tend to move slowly in cricket, whereas what we've seen here in this crisis in England is that they are making decisions very quickly, they're responding to the crisis very energetically, um, and so far, I have to say, pretty well. So, you know, well done to them. It's very tough for the decision makers at the moment, and I'm not always somebody who is, uh, you know, slapping administrators on the back for their good work, but I do think in this, in this situation they've done pretty well. They continue to do so. They're going to try their damnedest to get cricket on, albeit by not taking undue risks. Uh, and eventually we will get through it, but it, it might be some time before absolute normality returns. Yeah, I think also from, from a player's perspective, you're talking, I mean, my instance was after the Hansi gate. Um, you know, just, I mean, I agree with that. And, and the administrators are going to have to do a lot of planning, a lot of answering of questions and putting a lot of measures in place. And I think the players, there's no way you can go away from the humanity element of, of having understanding and compassion for what's going on. But it will take some strong management and leadership that if you do play a test match and there's no crowd in, how do you get your players to make sure that they're fully focused on the job at hand? Um, you know, often, often if you have a bad performance, 
you, the coach doesn't need to say anything because you go down to fine leg and there's about 55 people to let you know how badly you perform <laughs> and what you're doing wrong. Whereas it's going to take some leadership where you get back into the dressing room and you know, the coach and the captain will have to say, listen, not good enough. We, we weren't professional enough. Proud of performance for what we're actually doing out there. Because as much as, as there's a massive amount of things going on, when you do get onto the field, you've got to be professional enough to focus on the job at hand and apply your skills. So, yeah, it will be immensely challenging. Um, you know, people with regards to form, how to even judge whether they're in or aren't in form. It, it, it's a difficult one to, to manage. But um, as I say, I think it might take some small steps um, initially. Um, but, you know, it, it has a bit of a snowball effect. As soon as you've got cricket taking place, uh, then other things tend to just fall into place as, as everything gathers momentum. And, um, normality be, yeah. will be a l- long way away. It's going to be very interesting to see what the game is like once normality returns. I mean, you know, in the last decade or so since the IPL, cricket's been powered by, you know, globalization and big money has come into the game. Clearly, everybody's going to be a bit poorer after all this. Countries will be cutting back. Finances will be hit. Whether that ease of international travel will allow, you know, the explosion of franchise tournaments that we've seen so it asks some fundamental questions I think of how the game will be uh, once we get back to some kind of normality but that's you know that's for down the line. Would you agree though that Australia T20 World Cup could almost be the first step towards normality if if they get it all right so if I'm saying that the ideal scenarios are the virus is eliminated from the Australian country, from the island. Um, you charter all the teams in who, who um, self-quarantine for two weeks and do all their training, and then they can enter that bubble. Um, you know, that could be as close to normality as we get because if there's all, the, if the virus is totally eliminated, you can have your crowds. Um, mm. And they're talking about creating this Tasman bubble um, where... People can come across from New Zealand as well um, and maybe incorporate some of the other islands. But that could be as close to normality as we'll get for a long time, I feel. Um, And only because of the environment that Australia finds itself in, where they can close the borders, they can make sure that nothing else comes in. And once they've got rid of the virus, just like New Zealand almost have done, um, that that could be as close to normality in the next eight or ten months. Yeah, you might be right. The only thing against that is I saw Ravi Shastri yesterday or today said that he thought the IPL should take precedence and that should be played in that window. So whether they will look to play that then and then move, slightly delay or postpone the World T20 Mm. a bit further down the line to allow more of a chance of of crowds. Because World T20, one tournament you do want crowds for is that World T20, isn't it? You just referred to um, well, my next question, Michael, about the amount of money in the game. It was a question to both of you. Uh, um, £220 million in television rights money for the ECB if they, can, if they can host all 18 internationals, six tests, six ODIs and, and six T20s. Um, Cricket South Africa is even, even more desperate. I mean, I think most uh, boards, the BCCI... Um, the, the, each edition of the IPL is is worth in, in the region of three billion or just under three billion US dollars. 
I don't even know what a billion is. And it's just, <laughs> the, you know, the, I mean, the Indian government say that the BCCI is worth as a tournament $11 billion to the national economy, the IPL. So no wonder Ravi Shastri and, and the BCCI are keen to get it on, on the go. But have we become too, too reliant on these massive, massive amounts of money? I mean, it's, it, obviously nobody was predicting the pandemic, but um, would you like to see the, the structure, the global structure of the game changed um, after this? It may happen anyway. <laughs> It's very interesting because one of the things that happens, of course, television money is the thing that has revolutionized the game. Bizarrely, I was on a tour of India in 93 when the very first satellite game was played at Jaipur in ODI, England against India. And at that point, you know, every game was televised by the national broadcaster. Suddenly, that satellite television revolution took off. And that really is what has driven the game in the last 20 years, huge amounts of, of money. And what happens when that money comes into the game is that you have a kind of growth around the, the nucleus. If you, if you say that the absolute essence of the game is the players, obviously they get much better paid. But what you get is a massive growth around the players. So many more coaches, huge amounts of commercial staff, you know, whatever it is, there's a huge explosion uh, around the core element, which is the playing staff. And then the problem is, of course, is when you get a, pandemic like this or an event like this where revenue falls off the cliff you've got so many more people who are now reliant on that television money so it's a real problem it's something Tom Harrison has talked about at length here in England where he says time and time again the cost base of the game is too high we've got too high a cost base we're too reliant on television money and we have to do something about that and I suspect what this crisis will do is is make people look again and have a bit of a rethink and a reset. I don't know what shape that will take, but it's got to have some effect, I would have thought. I think it'll have a big effect on the guys who, who make more money, won't it? I mean, from a South African perspective, we haven't made a massive amount of money over the last few seasons. And in many ways, if, if we were forced into a domestic Mzanzi league and maybe they changed how the, the broadcast was was done, manners, no effect or influence trying to make any issues for you there. <laughs> but um, if Supersport got involved, for example, they would end up actually creating money for that initial period. And as I've said earlier, we were pretty fortunate in many ways that it was an off-season for us. So um, there wasn't much cricket that was forecast for us and, and many money-making opportunities. And hopefully by the time we get back into action, something's transpired where the cricket can can happen, but I think definitely the, the bigger countries who make massive amounts, they definitely the ones are going to feel the pinch. Just wanted to get clarity on the ball shining thing, Sean. Kookaburra apparently are coming up with a with a with, with a sort of wax shining stick. Um, I mean, it would be the same for for all for, for both sides and all the bowlers, wouldn't it? Um, and Michael, there's been talk of just legalizing all kinds of ball tampering as long as it doesn't involve bodily fluids. Well, I'm glad you came to me on that one, Manners. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have actually seen that, yeah, there's a stick, a kind of rollerball stick that has one has wax in it, one has a kind of antibacterial hose. And the thought is that you can use that to shine the ball. Um, and then the other 
that you just don't allow bowlers to do anything, use any kind of sweat or saliva. They're still not sure about sweat, are they? Seems clear that saliva can transmit the virus. Quite sure yet whether sweat on the ball can transmit a virus. All these kind of issues, you know, to be sorted out over the next few days. I think you've got an ICC cricket meeting Monday, haven't you, Sean? Which yeah. you'll be talking about these things. We'll discuss this. I mean, as I say, I would think that you would you would have to create a bubble um, for the players to be involved in. So whether that should be as big a problem, and and maybe I don't know, you know, maybe they can there can be some sort of as you say, a wax that, say, a team can apply every five overs. You can give them a little bit of wax, they can put it on, they can polish it with the cloth that the umpire has, and then off you go. Um, and that should last for five overs with the constant polishing on, on the pants. Um, I think it will be something that, uh, that we will get our heads around and, and be able to make work. But, uh, yeah, as far as the batsmen saying that maybe nothing should be done and we should just leave it in the condition <laughs> that it is. There's no surprise with that suggestion. <laughs> Sean, if there was a bowler that I, that I would could pick from the last 30 years to take it as a challenge to make a, a shining gadget work and to master it, it would be you. You would love it. You'd love the challenge, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, I suppose it wouldn't be a bad thing. Well, you just going to say, just give an umpire a cloth and he's allowed to have a little bit of wax or whatever, some shining agent on it, and, and you give the ball to him and he gives it a scrub, then no players can get into trouble and, and off <laughs> we go. And Sean, what would you like to see changed from an administrative point of view or a, a scheduling point of view, a future tours programme? If this, if this, is uh, giving us a rather awkward opportunity to wipe the slate clean and, and, and look at things with fresh eyes. Is there anything you would like to, to be addressed? Yeah, I don't know. I suppose it's going to be a massive challenge with regards to travel. Um, you know, and until you get that vaccine, it, it's going to be very surprising to see teams just be able to fly over to different parts of the world and, and participate. So. Yeah, I think they're definitely going to have to think outside the box and, and come up with strategies of, of how they can make some sort of international cricket work uh, for all the countries. I think that is the key. I think even in this situation, there's going to be a lot of teams who are in a stronger position. For example, the ECB, uh, they can spend £400,000 to get a team over in order to have international cricket. There are some other boards that have got absolutely no opportunity to do so. You know, maybe Emirates as a sponsor could get involved and, and maybe help out. But I think the ICC does need to make sure that under this pandemic, that they do look after all the boards and try and make any kind of international cricket transpire. Um, as I say, your stronger nations, your more financially secure nations will probably be able to make things work on their own. The rest of them, I don't see how they can make any plans at this stage. What good might come of it, Michael? We've got a few minutes left. I mean, it's obviously the ECB's problems have been enhanced, haven't they, by the, the cancellation or the postponement of the 100, having invested so much money in that. But, but um, as you said, you're a glass half full kind of person. So, so what, what good might, might come of this? How might the game improve, be better? Well, I hope that um, the stronger boards that Sean just mentioned there, England, Australia, India, recognize the need for the other boards to be as strong, as financially robust as possible. International cricket has only got, what, 10, 
teams or thereabouts, 10, 12 teams, it's in everybody's interest that those 10 or 12 teams are as strong as possible. And as we've seen this summer, you know, you do require the help of other countries. So England, for example, now are really reliant on West Indies and Pakistan coming. And if you think about it, they're asking these teams to come and show a great deal of generosity. They don't get anything out of it. There's no financial incentive for West Indies or Pakistan to come. We're asking their players to come for a period of time in a, you know, in a lockdown environment, essentially, and coming to the eye of the storm where the pandemic is as bad as anywhere. I think England has the fourth worst per million population in the world. So we're asking a great deal of West Indies and Pakistan's players. So it shows that you do need kind of international cooperation. You do need help from everybody. And I hope if they do come, West Indies and Pakistan, that generosity is not forgotten and that England, Australia and India recognise the need for kind of everybody to be strong and, and hopefully just a bit more of a kind of communal feeling about cricket than perhaps there has been over the last, the last few years. I think another positive that might come out of it too is, is more of an appreciation for the game. Um, you know, we've always talked about how much cricket is on the go. And now that it's going to be a few <laughs> games will be scheduled here and there. Yeah, I mean, I did see a, a tweet that a guy sent through and, and a message that one of my mates sent through. It said, he doesn't care the, who the international game is, whether it's Bangladesh taking on Afghanistan, he'll be glued to that TV and he'll be watching absolutely every minute after three months of watching no live sport. So I think there will be an extra appreciation, particularly to the international game, because it's going to have so many challenges to get it on the go. Uh, domestically, as I mentioned, it might be able to happen a little bit earlier in South Africa in particular. Um, but I think there will be a new appreciation and, uh, and that's probably a good thing. Talk about the money in cricket, Michael. What about the Premier League? Gosh, um, and the, the Bundesliga. So, so it's, we're obviously focusing on cricket, but, you know, the, and, the, and the millions and billions of pounds and dollars in cricket. But goodness me, uh, you know, sport as an industry across all formats, all games, all, it's, um, it's vast, isn't it? Absolutely vast. It I mean, it has to restart. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, football dwarfs everything in England. Um, you know, and, and it's been a tricky year for football here. They don't quite speak with one voice. Cricket's just had one voice, ECB, telling everybody what's going to happen. Here, of course, you've got the Premier League and the FA and all, all different kind of governing bodies. So it's not been so straightforward. But the sums are eye-watering uh, in football. Um, so there's a great kind of desire to see that come back as well and that may come back a little bit before cricket but they're pretty optimistic here about about cricket getting underway July the 8th three tests against West Indies three ODIs against Ireland uh, then three tests against Pakistan and, and maybe then six one day games three T20s and three ODIs against Australia possibly potentially so they're as optimistic as they can be fingers crossed basically the, the one thing that would would Stop it would be a second spike, you know, if the pandemic takes off again here and spike goes up and the government impose another full lockdown, that then would be very difficult. I'm going to ask you both for your, your closing thoughts, um, but ju just before I do, um, Sean, it's funny you mentioned uh, that there are parts of this vast country in South Africa that uh, don't ha that haven't had any cases. 
Um, and I guess a question to both of you, really, I suppose, that if you are going to play cricket um, without crowds and with as few people as possible, you know, it's just the, it's the cameraman, the director, the match officials, the players, and that's it. Um, then the, I understand, of course, Old Trafford and the Aegeus Bowl being used with hotels on site and whatever. But in many ways, the, the more remote the field, um, the the better in in many ways. I'm thinking of sort of a, a in, in South Africa's case, you know, a, a club ground in in Griqualand West, with, uh, <laughs> with, with only has a hundred people living in within a hundred kilometres, that kind of thing. But but seriously, that's 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 what you need, isn't it? You know, the smaller the venue is possible, just that it's a made for television product. Yeah, I think the advantage England do have a lot of their county grounds can almost be regarded as boutique. Um, stadiums and in many ways in South Africa uh, you know, that's a case in point if, if we can host uh, I mean you, you have the massive issue of having to deal with a huge stadium um, is a bit of a, a toothache if, if they want to get cricket up and running so if you can take it to remote places um, for example you know like Kimberley or Kimberley and Bloemfontein <laughs> might have had the fewest ca- uh, cases of, of the virus. You know, maybe you, you take your domestic stuff up, up there and, and you can make sure that, you know, people can go all around. They don't have to even stay in the hotels because um, they should be able to manage things. But uh, it will be interesting to see how, how those kind of things transpire. But on your sporting front too, I, I think it's also, you have been able to work out which are the big sporting events, haven't you? I mean, over these years, you can turn on and you get 10 or 12 channels sort of watch anything but when we're all in lockdown and there's no sporting events happening you do realize which are the main ones and you're saying well gee i wish that one i wish the masters or i wish wimbledon i wish we could see some cricket so it will also maybe from the from a tv station's perspective they are going to have to try and work out what events they're going to prepare to risk to cover um and so some of the smaller sports they might say listen from a perspective it's not really worth it so it's going to be interesting to see how that that unfolds as well. Well, without wishing to upset the people of Kimberley, it wouldn't be my first choice if you gave me all the grounds <laughs> in the world to go and to go and cover a, a game. Kimberley wouldn't be one. I don't know. Take me to New Zealand. What's that beautiful ground with those grass steps in New Zealand called? It, not uh, not Napier. Um, Take me to New Zealand. In Some Nelson. Gorgeous Gorgeous bucolic ground in, in New Zealand, I think. Well, it's a, it's a Nelson, I think. Any of those. Nelson. Yeah, isn't that one that got the, the, the grass tears? There's yeah, lots, not, not many people there. <laughs> um, gentlemen, so your, your closing thought then um, about, about the future, the present. Um, any, um, any, anything that you haven't said? so far or words of encouragement michael uh, no just that from everything i hear you know they're on track um, there's a three-step process to getting international cricket on albeit behind closed doors albeit without crowds the area that i feel really sorry for uh, are just the thousands of club cricketers up and down the land you know the recreational players my lad who is 17 you know was in the last year of his academy career at Middlesex, wanting to push for a contract, wanting to get playing cricket this summer, you know, desperate for for the recreational game in this country, because I don't see that coming back immediately. Uh, but fingers crossed we can get some televised 
international cricket, which will be better than nothing, um, albeit, you know, not ideal. Yeah, I just think it's been an opportunity for a reset. I think definitely a new appreciation for our game, which is, is good. And I think it just fits into the modern way of doing things. Adaptability is probably one of the key words. I think going forward, we're going to have to be adaptable to get the game we love back on the TV screens and for people to enjoy. So interesting times and, you know, we give our thoughts, but uh, how it's going to play out in the next three months will definitely be worth writing about. And you too can do that while I sit at home and just watch <laughs> things unfold. <laughs> Michael Atherton, Sean Pollock, thank you so much indeed for your time here on the Cricket Collective. It's been brilliant to catch up and uh, hopefully we'll be able to do it in person soon enough. Thanks for your time. My thanks to both Michael Atherton and Sean Pollock for their time over the last hour. If you've missed any of the show or wish to catch up, you can download the podcast from the following on feed, available on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify. Once again, thanks for listening. The Men's Room, a talk sport podcast in partnership with Toolstation. From masculinity to mental health, friendship to fatherhood. Join Tom Skinner and Neil Razor Ruddock for the podcast that gets to the nuts and bolts of what it really means to be a man. Listen and follow now via your preferred podcast portal. The Men's Room, in partnership with Toolstation. Save 5% on everything you need for a whole month with the new Toolstation Club. Join today online, in-store or via the app. Yeah, hold that, please. Level five, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to Ertz and the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to Ertz and the Channelized Bimbingus of the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how.